Hello, and welcome to Inside ETFs, the podcast where we bring the latest and greatest ETF industry perspectives directly to you through in-depth discussions with key thought leaders from across the ETF ecosystem. I'm your host, Douglas Jonas, the head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange, the home of ETFs. Now, today I am joined by David Braun. David is the head of the U.S. Financial Institutions Group, as well as the Stable Value Portfolio Management Teams at PIMCO. David joined PIMCO in 2009. He is currently a senior member of both the Liability Driven Investment, as well as the U.S. Core Portfolio Management Teams. He oversees management of PIMCO's fixed income investment portfolios for both institutional and retail clients. Mr. Braun also serves as co-sponsor of PIMCO Pride, contributing to PIMCO's investments in inclusion and in diversity internally and externally. He has over 28 years of investment, risk management, and actuarial experience, and I'm excited to have him here with us today. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Doug, and thank you to Inside ETF for having me. So David, PIMCO has been managing money for over 50 years and currently has over $2 trillion in assets under management. And in case anyone listening has missed it, 91% of PIMCO's assets are outperforming their benchmarks over a five-year period. David, when I share that figure, you've been with the firm for over a decade now. Are you surprised to hear that level of performance? Yeah, well, if you think about PIMCO's history, uh, we began in 1971, coincidentally the same year I was born. And we began with the idea of, or asking ourselves the question, why can't investors actively manage their bond portfolio? When we were founded, uh, it's something like a basic question now with an obvious answer. But back then it was quite revolutionary because before PIMCO did this, uh, investors would buy bonds, hold them to maturity and clip their coupon along the way. Well, if you think about a bond, its price goes up and down just like any other financial securities price. And the prices of bonds move at different velocities. So why not trade them to try to you know, capture capital appreciation and avoid capital losses? And if you also think about it, different bonds have different yields and different risks based on their quality, um, where they are along the yield curve or their duration, and then the size of the bond issuance and obviously other factors. So why not trade them to optimize your portfolio's risk-adjusted return profile? In 1971, PIMCO was a pioneer in inventing uh, active management for fixed income. And we, to this day, have a myopically focused view that active fixed income management is the way to go in your bond portfolios. And you know, we like to say that we don't strive to be the biggest asset manager, but we just stri- strive to be the best fixed income active manager. And I guess your question about, am I surprised by the percentage? I guess with that as the historical backdrop, uh, no, I'm not surprised by it. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about the benefits of active versus passive later, so that, that doesn't really surprise me that much. Well, I'm sure your teams are, are pretty excited that, that that's quite a number in the asset management space. Now, of course, PIMCO runs a number of solutions for advisors across a multitude of asset classes. But I actually want to start with you, David, with your active fixed income ETF, ticker symbol B-O-N-D, often referred to across the ETF industry. Uh, many people may not realize it's actually coming up on its 10-year anniversary. And by every account, has been a tremendous success in the ETF marketplace. When you were there launching BOND, when Bond's launching, did you, did the team, did you think it would go this well? Yeah, so when we launched Bond, uh, you know, we had a simple approach, which was uh, the ETF chassis and vehicle had become increasingly popular with investors and the financial advisors who serve them. And at PIMCO, we, we like to say we're vehicle agnostic. Uh, we believe we have a best-in-class 
fixed income investment engine. And by engine, I mean our process, our people, our human capital, and then our proprietary tools and models. And historically, that engine's done a good job delivering attractive risk-adjusted returns to investors. And we want to deliver that invest, investment engine to as many investors who understand the PIMCO value proposition and want to partner with us. So when the ETF chassis came along, who are we to tell people, no, you should go in a different vehicle? Uh, we had a long history of delivering that engine in 40 act mutual funds, in separately managed accounts for retail investors, and then in separate accounts for institutional investors. When the ETFs came out, uh, we feel we were an early innovator and pioneer and saw this as a new vehicle that certain investors preferred for whatever reasons, and why not try to deliver our strategies in that vehicle? And Bond specifically uh, was launched in 2012, and its goal was to be that ETF for the investor looking for a core bond or core plus bond, a benchmark to the Bloomberg Barclays uh, US aggregate. Originally, it was a clone of the 40 Act Mutual Fund that has a, a long track record at PIMCO, and it did quite well uh, in the early years. But over time, what we got was feedback from the ETF investors and the advisors that served them that they didn't want just a clone of the 40 Act Mutual Fund. They wanted something a little different. And they pointed out three things. One, they wanted it to be a simpler portfolio. One of the beauties of an ETF is the daily transparency. But when you have complex strategies like derivatives or currency positions in there, it was confusing a lot of end investors and their advisors. Second, they wanted a more tax-aware portfolio. We had distributed some taxable gains in the early years and it upset some folks. Uh, we found out that most of the time the ETF was held in a taxable vehicle, and thus this type of volatility was not very attractive to investors. And then third, they wanted us to focus more on income generation, and they wanted a more stable and robust distribution yield, uh, rather than just us pursuing solely total return cap appreciation and alpha. So that's why in 2017, Barnes mandate was modified and the prospectus was modified and the portfolio management team was modified. That's when I was brought on. And, uh, you know, since 2017, we've been running it uh, with those three things in, in the back of our minds, still trying to deliver the same exact strategies we're delivering across our core platform, uh, but doing it in a more sensitive way to those three uh, criteria that end users had defined for us. Yeah. I, and I love the the way in which PIMCO has thought about this, right? Take all of the benefits of the ETF wrapper and then combine that with the the requests, the demands, the the problems, if you will, that advisors are trying to 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 overcome, and then here you are, sort of meeting the the advisor exactly where they need to be, and and I think another example we talk about bond, but it wasn't just bond. If I go back to some of the early days of Pimco's ETF business. You launched another very successful ETF, ticker symbol MINT, uh, easy enough, M-I-N-T, used today by many investors as a cash holding vehicle. What was PIMCO's strategic plan broadly, you know, I think about the ETF program at that time? Yeah, let me hit the, the broader part and then I'll circle back on MINT. Um, so our broad strategy in ETFs was to deliver active management to the fixed income ETF user, right? Uh, if you look at that space, it's largely dominated, although at a declining rate, by passive fixed income ETFs. And we feel the move into passive fixed income ETFs was largely inadvertent. If you think about the infancy of ETFs, it was largely an equity of stock ETF market. And we all know the data that a lot of large cap active managers in, in stocks have had a tough time beating their index or their passive peers, a net of fees. And so when folks were using ETFs and they were largely an equity vehicle, it kind of makes sense that they were dominated by passive strategies because that's what, what was assumed to work there. And then when these ETF investors said, hey, we need some more bond ETFs to diversify our 
our, our clients' investments, the bond funds, almost knee-jerk, largely were passive you know, funds. And we looked at that and said, this is, this is not right. Uh, it's the reverse in mutual funds where active mutual funds uh, in fixing them space are still the you know, larger portion of the universe. But in bonds, it's the flip-flop. So what we said, and we've done a lot of research on this, is bonds are different. If you go to our website and look up bonds are different, you'll see our research where we study history and show that uh, not just PIMCO funds, but all mutual funds and ETFs, the active equity managers do indeed have a tough time beating their passive peers. Yet on bond side, bonds are different. And the, um, the majority of bond managers do beat their passive peers. And we think there's a lot of reasons for this. And the, the paper articulates it better than I'm going to here, but I'll hit a few. The market structure, right? So equities, I'm going to use the S&P 500 as an equity case study. So I'm trying to replicate that in a passive equity fund and the Barclays Ag as uh, the bond one. If you think about that, stocks are exchange traded, uh, whereas bonds are still largely over the counter. So there's a transparency, a transaction cost, and an information uh, advantage of, of, of an active bond manager versus what you can garner in stockland. The number of securities, S&P 500, well, it's 500. Uh, the Barclays Ag has over 12,000 securities in it. So inherently just harder to replicate and, and potentially uh, easier to beat. Uh, second, on you know, the S&P 500, each company has one common stock that's in there. Uh, some of these companies have dozens of QSIPs in the ag. And then turnover, S&P turns over 4%, where a few names fall out, a few names come in. The ag turns over 40% every year. So you're chasing an inherently harder thing to replicate with a lot of inefficiencies in the market. And then a couple of things we don't like about passive strategies is it's debt cap weighted. So you're inherently lending to the most indebted issuers, which doesn't smell like an intelligent way to lend your money. Uh, there's a halo effect. When something is anointed index eligible, they have a financing advantage because it's a captive audience who has to buy their bonds to replicate the index. So they give a lower yield to the, the person who buys that bond. And then finally, there's a buy high, sell low paradigm that, that is, it comes with replicating an index. Something's anointed index eligible, its price is high because everyone's buying it, you buy it. Uh, as soon as it falls out of the index, everyone sells it because they're replicating the index, its price falls, that's when you sell it. And then finally, turning back to our product suite, yeah, Mint was launched in 09, I believe. And uh, it was one of our first active, one of the first active ETFs in the market. And uh, is one of the biggest still to this date, a tremendous success record there. And our strategy there was to start on the front end. A lot of uh, folks had cash that, you know, they wanted to get a little more yield out of it and performance out of it. And we have a good strategy there. And so we launched that. Then we launched Bond in 2012 to kind of get you a longer part on the yield curve. And then right in the middle of that, or I guess shortly thereafter, I should say, we launched Elder uh, in 2014. So if you think of those two products, Mint is ultra short front end, so less than one year. Elder is a two to three year type product. And then Bond is a five to six year type product. So we feel we've provided our investors with points on the yield curve and the risk spectrum, risk return spectrum, so that they can customize based on their view of interest rates and the market and level of risk they want to run. And, and, you know, your focus, it really doesn't seem to be changing, right? You're, where are uh, advisors' needs? How can PIMCO meet those needs? And when does it make sense to do it in an ETF wrapper? And I think about that, you know, in today's markets, you know, within the last year, of course, launching in the muni space, uh, again, you know, seeking to use the ETF, the benefits of the ETF, but, but combining it with PIMCO's expertise. Yeah, Doug, that's exactly it. We're, we're never going to be the shop who tries to be everything to everybody and launch a whole bunch of Me Too products. Uh, we're going to stick to our core competencies and where we think we have a, a good chance of providing successful 
risk-adjusted outcomes to investors. So again, not, not trying to be the biggest shop, just trying to be the best active management shop. You mentioned the Muni Fund, Minnow, M-I-N-O. Um, that's exactly what we're trying to do there. Think of that as like B-O-N-D, where we're trying to deliver our actively managed strategies in the Muni space, in this case, to investors who understand our strategies and, and want to participate in it. Um, and all those inefficiencies I mentioned about the Barclays Ag, uh, it's probably on steroids in the Muni market with how fragmented that market with the number of issuers and number of QCIPs, uh, how, how much less liquid that market is than ag-like securities. So we think it's a fertile opportunity for us to drive more positive and attractive risk-adjusted returns for investors who want a Muni product. Another product iteration of Mint, we launched an ESG-focused version of Mint uh, called eMint. And there, we all know everyone's more interested in having a more ESG-friendly or focused portfolio. And uh, we thought that was a great way to start uh, off the success of Mint. Um, why not start offering an, an ESG-focused version of Mint on the front end to get investors you know, involved in, in a more ESG-centric strategy? So there, there you go. We're trying to figure out where there's a void in the market, where there's an opportunity for our strategies to, to, to add alpha or, and add risk-adjusted returns, and then launch uh, products intelligently. That makes sense. Now, D- Dave, I do want to talk a bit about the economy, right? And, and what you and your teams are seeing in the markets. There's clearly no shortages of headlines on uh, inflation, inflation fears, rising rates, and how this all blends together when we start talking about fixed income, when we talk about bonds in general and adding them into a portfolio. What are you and your team suggesting to advisors right now? Yeah, so you know, Pipco does a quarterly forum, and we, you know, we, we take a week and we debate what we think is going to happen. Three of those forums focus on the next twelve months, called the cyclical outlook, and then one of those quarterly forums focuses on the secular outlook, which is three to five. Uh, back in late December, we concluded our cyclical, and we published those results in mid January. So that that outlook was called, and that's for the next year or so. Um, that outlook was called investing in a fast moving cycle. And what we mean by that is if you think about the COVID recession, by all measures, it was one of the most violent and sharpest recessions in in, in modern history, right? Whether you look at the GDP drawdown or the jobs drawdown or the drawdown in risk assets like the S&P 500, I mean, it was pretty violent and pretty rapid. Um, But but on the the flip side, the snapback has been almost as violent and rapid, right? Unemployment's below 4%. Uh, Our stock of GDP here in the U.S. is basically... At our 2019 rates, grown with our trend potential, um, so it's almost as if the recession never happened. And then finally, the risk assets are quite robust. I think the S&P 500 established a new high in 2021 70 times. So uh, it was the proverbial: the harder you fall, the faster you snap back. And yes, we can talk about how a lot of that was fiscal stimulus led and monetary stimulus led, but here we are. Um, so we quickly went from early cycle recovery in second half of 2020 to mid-cycle to very much a late cycle. Um, So our outlook specifically is 2022 is gonna be a above trend growth year for the US and the majority of the developed market nations. So we probably have the US growing three to 4%, which is double our trend potential. So another strong year. Um, And that's in the face of a lot of uncertainty though. Like as an investor, you have to have a base case, uh, but when uncertainty is high and volatility is high, you need to be humble and and, and express the view that, yeah, we have a base case, but there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty around that base case. So I, I feel one of our highest conviction views is uncertainty and volatility are here to stay. And certainly we saw that in January in the markets and the, the economic data coming our way. Without, so what without are the risks? Yeah. 
Yeah, right. So what are the risks to that baseline? They're big. And they're both to the right tail and the left tail, where our baseline could be too modest and not high enough in growth, or it could be, you know, too Pollyannish and too high. So some of the risks are COVID, you know, is, is the Omicron wave and, and the burnout that it's starting to exhibit kind of the final leg where we go from pandemic to endemic, as some experts are saying, other experts are saying, no, it's not. So that's obviously one of the key drivers. Second, the removal of fiscal accommodation. Yeah, we're still running deficits, but they're not what they were in 2020 and 2021. So there's a big implicit view there that the the real economy, household and corporate spending are going to pick up the baton from the fiscal spending that got us through 2020 and 2021. And then finally, monetary policy and the loose financial conditions, that's rapidly changing as the Fed and other developed market central banks are removing that accommodation quite rapidly. So those are all the risks to the system that have us uh, you know, eating that piece of humble pie and making sure we're running our portfolios in a prudent way where we're making sure we maximize flex about flexibility and dry powder, and we can take advantage of uh, the volatility and uncertainty. And quite frankly, you know, as an investor and, and I guess as a human, I don't sleep as well when the markets are volatile and uncertain. I'm sure your listeners don't either. But as an active manager, that's what we signed up for, right? We need uncertainty. We need volatility in the market. We need dispersion across asset classes and sectors and issuers to be able to generate alpha. So we'll take that uncertainty and volatility. We got to get our calls right, but that should be an alpha rich where you can take advantage of market opportunities as they arise. Yeah, so interesting to hear the other side of the coin, like you said, around volatility and and you know the fears that can sometimes come with that. We're we're, we're certainly looking in 2022 at a rising interest rate environment. For many investors, we you know especially newer investors, they've never seen a rising interest rate environment. And for many of us, you and me, we've been around for a while, but we we haven't seen something like this in in any time of recent time frame. Should investors looking at your portfolio, should they be thinking about things differently right now as a result? Yeah, so a uh, good question. So everyone likes to talk about how, um, you know, why would I own bonds now? We all know rates are going up. You know, I, I entered this industry in the early 90s and, and, and the folks who taught me this business when I was uh, in my early 20s, you know, I remember them telling me, hey, kid, you missed it. Like the, all the money that's been made in bond has already been made, right? With the big rally we had from the level of interest rates in the 80s and the 90s. So I've been hearing about the death of the bond market my entire career. So I'm a little bit jaded in hearing it. And, and our base view is, um, is basically this, that the bulk of the rate move up has already happened. The 10-year treasury established an all-time low in August of 2020. I think it closed at 51 basis points or thereabouts. Um, and now we're sitting here. And if you think about that, that's exactly where we were before COVID hit. We were in the 11th year of an economic expansion. We were running a trillion dollar fiscal deficit. Um, unemployment was three and a half percent. And we were at a 1.8 10-year treasury. And there were a lot less risks on the horizon. You know, nobody knew we were going to have a global pandemic right around the corner. But you get the point. Um, so when we look at our, our country, our trend potential of you know, 1.8-ish, 1.7 GDP growth, uh, the massive amount of debt stock we have, right? We all know as a society right now, we're over-levered. Yes, banks and households, have cut leverage over the past 12, 13 years, but non-financial corporates and the government have added leverage. And thus as a society, we're over-levered. That usually implies years of lower rate environment. And, and then the demographics and immigration dynamics of our country. We're, we're an older nation, retiring earlier, undersaved for retirement. Um, and uh, that usually creates the saving thought that we saw before COVID. That's uh, a compressor on rates and keeps rates down. Uh, and then same thing with immigration, right? So we, we can't kind of re- replenish those 
uh, aging, retiring workers with younger, uh, more vibrant workers because of immigration policies. So the last thing I was going to say is, so we think we think the bulk of the rate move has has happened already. And if you look at what the markets are pricing in for Fed hikes, they're pretty consistent with what we believe. So, you know, that rise in the 10-year treasury from 51 base points to 183, you know, there's not another 130 base points of rise in, ahead of us in, by our measures. And uh, this has created an opportunity for bond investors to get back in the game where, you know, the Barclays Ag is now yielding 2% on a yield to worse or above 2%. And uh, most active managers can generate, a, you know, an extra yield variance of that of 100 basis points. So you're talking about a 2 to 3% return on a high quality um, bond portfolio. Uh, and we think that has a place in, in investors' uh, portfolio. Now, Dave, when, when you look back, you know, we've mentioned the, 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 the crisis, if you will, of March 2020 a few times here. But, but what I'm curious about is when you meet with your teams and you look back at March 2020 or really any market crisis that the team's gone through, are, are, there, are there lessons that you look at and say, boy, as a result of that and what I've learned going forward, the, the next time this is what we're going to do or, or every day we're going to prepare differently? Is there, is there something you take away with you? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun question, right? Most of us in this field like to read about historical blowups, you know, to backfill for when, you know, we weren't working in the Great Depression and things like that. So it, it's always fascinating. And I'd say, I'd say three things I took away from, you know, what happened in March 2020 when the COVID recession first. First thing is the unexpected happens, right? You need to be humble in this market. I remember 2020, most investors and market participants had low probability of a recession that year. Everything was going well. The Fed had to re- remove um, some of the tightening it had done in 2018. It was an election year, usually on a recession election year. And a lot of people had low probability of a recession. And then, boom, you get hit with it. And that's actually, this time was a global pandemic. But oftentimes, a recession comes out of nowhere and happens for reasons unexpected by the market. So again, go back to being humble. Even if your models and everything say low, low risks on the horizon, you got to realize that things happen in an unexpected fashion. Second thing is pretty much every financial uh, uh, crisis and drawdown in the markets that, uh, caused by recession, it's, it's those who mismanage their liquidity or their leverage who suffer the most and, and fail or have the steepest drawdowns. And you certainly saw it there where liquidity evaporated over those two, three, four weeks before the Fed stepped in. And you know, that's, there's, a, there's a key lesson to be learned there. Uh, in the old days when the, the banking system in the U.S. was... Um, less regulated, if you will, they were much stronger at being a market intermediary who would step in when the first signs of panic buying would happen. Their, their, their capital charges and liquidity buffers, et cetera, are very onerous. So they're very jealous in how they deploy that capital and liquidity. So when the market starts to go in one direction, if it's student body left and everyone's exiting risk, there's not that natural intermediary to dampen it. So you better have your leverage and liquidity right. And you know, PEMCO's obviously had a long history of of doing this well. And then the third thing I'd say is, you know, bonds did their, you know, it was back then, you know, go back to before COVID hit. So I think in February of 2020, the tenure was around 1.8. That's about where it is today. And a lot of, a lot of the rhetoric back then was the same as now. Uh, why would I own bonds? The yields are too low. Um, they're not going to bail me out if we get a, a sock drawdown because there's not a lot of room to rally. Well, guess what? Bonds delivered positive returns during the, the, the worst of the COVID crisis, where uh, a generic bond fund acted as a ballast and it, 
and a dampening uh, impact on one's portfolio to offset the losses from their, their equities and other risk assets. Uh, so very analogous to right now. And, but the one thing I would also say is you got to be careful because not all bond funds are created equal. A lot of them wedge a lot of credit beta in there. And then when you get a bad equity market outcome, like we saw in March and April of 2020, that credit beta quickly converges and starts behaving like equity beta. And if you don't have your scaling appropriately, the extra credit you have in your portfolio and then the widening of credit spreads when the stock market's in free fall can negate all of the rallying in your you know, hard duration assets like treasuries. So you, know, you want a bond manager who gets that dynamic uh, and gets that bonds exist for a purpose, which is uh, kind of the insurance against your, um, your equity holdings. So when we take that all into consideration and we start to look at 2022, are there specific ways you think portfolios should be allocated or is there specific things advisors should be thinking about? Yeah, good question. So we would say, you know, let's, let's start with rates and then we'll go around the horn. Uh, we think, you know, this fear of, you know, massively rising rates is overdone. The bulk of the move has happened, in our opinion. And you've got nice forward-looking momentum from the bond yields you're getting now, which are, you know, much higher than they were, you know, a year or 18 months ago. Um, so there's some income generation there and the bond math is still going to hold when the stock market gets in, in big trouble or the economy gets in trouble and that you should get, you know, that, that dampening ballast effect out of your bond fund while you're earning income along the way. Um, next thing we'd say, so... You know, perhaps shade a little bit underweight duration because, you know, Fed is on move and, uh, you know, maybe we're in the middle of the range and there's a little more room to move on the 10 year up, but not a lot. Uh, next thing, uh, agency mortgages. We were significantly overweight agency mortgages in the past across our platform. Um, and they were had gotten to, all, you know, pretty much all time rich levels a couple months ago, partly because of the Fed's buying, partly because of bank buying. Uh, so we're waiting for better opportunities to enter that and can have lots of dry powder. And then, you know, when you think about the Barclays Ag, uh, it's a three-trick pony, treasuries, agency mortgages, and generic investment-grade corporates. And this is where we see um, the most level of complacency, if you will, where, you know, you know, you know I'm old school, right? So when, when the outlook is, is clouded with a lot of uncertainty and volatility, you as an investor should get some, you know, uh, cushion or uh, safety margin in your investments. Well, right now, as I mentioned, we're pricing very much late cycle behaviors. And if you look at generic investment grade spreads and generic high yield spread over the last 20 years, they're in the fourth quartile as far as richness goes. So there's not a lot of room for error in generic credit securities, which is the bond manager's way of, of, exp of expressing uh, you know, a reflationary trade if you think the economy is going to grow well for the next year, which we do. So if, if generic spreads are kind of tapped out and not offering a very attractive risk reward proposition, this is where active management comes into play. And active management is not just trading, right? Everyone thinks active management is flipping bonds around, and that's part of it. But a bigger part is actively positioning yourself versus a generic benchmark. So buying out-of-benchmark securities that offer a better risk-adjusted return. Uh, and there we're seeing significant value in, in off-benchmark securities. So we love housing. So non-agency mortgages, private label, not guaranteed by Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny. Uh, we've been one of the biggest buyers in, in that space for the last 12 years. Once the great financial crisis repriced that market to, to attractive levels, we've been buying. Um, we like financials over non-financials. So the bulk of our core portfolios are invested in financials. They've had a bifurcation from the leverage dynamics of the non-financial universe, right? What I mean by that is since the great financial crisis, banks have been deleveraging. Right, Volcker Rule, Dodd Frank, etc. 
have forced them to hold more liquidity and more capital and run less risk in their business. That's someone you want to lend to, right? You want to lend to someone with regulators forcing a whole lot of capital and run and run little risk in their balance sheet. On the flip side, non-financial corporates, it's it's been a, a an ad leverage dynamic where the active shareholder has more power than the than the active bondholder to hold their feet to the fire on leverage and discipline. Uh, that's why the Barclays corporate index is now north of fifty percent triple Bs, and thirteen years ago, third triple Bs or thereabouts. So you've had an adding of leverage in the non-financial universe, which spreads price firmly in the fourth quartile as far as richness. Um, so you know, go out of there. Other things we like are taxable municipal bonds. You know, strong, strong ratings, uh, structural risk premium you can cultivate there because there's fewer investors uh, trampling over themselves to buy them. Um, and then things like explicit COVID recovery service sector reopening trade. So, you know, you could you could put a small amount of a portfolio, a few percent, uh, in these um, you know more attractively priced. Yes, they have some risk to them, um, but things like security aircraft, small dose of gaming. Um, other hospitality and travel and leisure type bonds. And when you glue that all together, you've got a much more attractive portfolio, in our opinion, from a risk-adjusted perspective than just you know, buying more generic uh, investment-grade or high-yield corporates. So Dave, let's talk inflation. Is inflation something that is a short-term investor concern or is this an all-investor should be concerned? Yeah, so you, you can't open up a newspaper or turn on the TV without hearing someone talking about inflation. Yes, yeah, so our inflation view is this. Hopefully, headline inflation peaked last month. That's the one that includes food and energy. It was over 7% for year-over-year numbers. Our view on core inflation, which carves out food and energy, is that it peaks at some point in February or March of 2022. Probably peaks around 6%. And then by the end of the year, uh, rapidly falls down to something more like 3%. So Clearly not an all clear for the Fed, which looks at PCE, which comes in a little lower than core CPI typically. Um, so they're not at their goal by the end of 2022. But that rate of change or the second derivative of the, the readings are, are, are signaling to the Fed that it's moving their direction. So we think the bulk of this stubbornly high inflation that we're in the middle of and it's been going on for several quarters and is likely to go on for another month or two is largely caused by you know, the clogging up of the supply chains. Uh, the, the, the friction in the labor markets. What we mean by that is we know three, four million people left the labor market during COVID, uh, retired, left the labor force, et cetera. We're having trouble people getting back to some of the service sector jobs because of their discomfort in working in a face-to-face environment with our people while COVID is still out there. And then we all know the story in the supply chains, right? With uh, factories working at uh, reduced capacity, uh, the ships, shipping and ports and truck drivers working at reduced capacity, uh, you've got a supply chain problem. So as those things begin to work themselves out, we think you'll start seeing inflation come back to normal. So longer term, we don't think we've exited the you know, you know, Fed-like inflation environment we were in for the last decade. We're in some new structurally higher inflation environment. We think we're going to get back to those levels, albeit much longer than probably all of us would have liked both as investors and as consumers, but that's our base view. And now it's, again, just like the base view on the growth rate, it'd be you know too much hubris if you just said, that's my base view and, I'm, and there's no risk around it. There are risks to the wings of that base view. So clearly the amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus we've done, according to economic theory, would say that sows the seeds for higher inflation down the road. And that, that is a risk to the baseline. Um, this trend of trying to deglobalize uh, our supply chains, right? For 30, 40 years, we were doing 
global supply chains, letting, letting that go to the lowest cost of labor and capital, um, and also just-in-time inventory management, which was disinflationary. And now we're pulling our global supply chains closer to home and trying to build up inventories. That's inflationary. But on the flip side, I mean, look at the productivity gains we've made, right? So one silver lining of what we went through in COVID is we did you know, decades worth of R&D on, on technology development and, and, and medical treatment development in, in a two-year period. And usually when you do that much spending on, on, on technology advancements, that leads to higher productivity rates down the road. Uh, we saw this after the tech bubble, right? The 90s to 2000s was uh, an area where, yeah, we had a big financial blow up, but it left us with a societal good, which was the internet, grid computing, fiber optics network that led to a sustained period of higher productivity after it. So perhaps this, as, as bad as COVID was, could do that, and that will be disinflationary. And then again, those higher debt stocks I mentioned before, as a nation is over indebted, that typically implies years of lower rates and lower inflation as you got to burn off that debt. So, so Dave, I love this question, but uh, I love to ask it of all, of all my guests. What ETF does PIMCO have in your lineup that you feel like should have just completely taken off? It's, it, it should should be a master success, but it just hasn't hasn't gotten the attention it deserves yet. Yeah, so I'm probably an easier question if we had launched, uh, you know, dozens or hundreds of ETFs. I, I think we only have 17 ETFs out there. So again, we try to be very strategic. And I think out of those 17, only three or four are less than 100 million. So we've gotten critical mass on the vast majority of them. And I don't want to name any ETFs by name because you know there's, there's, there's none that we're disappointed in. But what I would say in general, I'd, I'd like to answer your question in a general fashion, if you don't mind. What I'm probably most disappointed with, as are my colleagues at PIMCO, is even though fixed income ETFs are growing at a faster rate than they were in the past, and that active man, actively managed ETFs are starting to take market share from the passively managed fixed income ETFs, you know, we're still not where we want to be, you know, where passive ETFs are still 85 or whatever it is percent of the, uh, the fixed income ETF universe. You know, it's better than the north of 90% they were a few years ago. But so the rate of change is in our favor. Uh, but when we look at the value proposition of active, active management versus passive management and fixed income, when we look at the historical data, not just the PIMCO's funds, like you mentioned in the beginning, but you know, all actively managed funds by our mutual fund and our ETF competitors, uh, they've got a long track record of beating passive. So we think the value proposition is very compelling uh, that, that what we're most disappointed in is just uh, not just our products, but all actively managed fixed income ETFs uh, haven't stolen more market share from passive. And, you know, we're hoping that we're on the precipice of that. And we're going to keep doing our job, not just to push our products, but to, to educate and tell the story of active management. And last thing I'd say, Doug, is uh, I probably should have said this earlier when you asked me about the outlook. But, you know, again, I, I think I did mention it, but I'll reemphasize it here. The world we're in now is a world that should be good for active management. Like, you know, things are fully valued on the credit side. There's a lot of risks in the market. The Fed's in motion. Got question marks about the pandemic. We got question marks about the durability of inflation and the long-term uh, structural inflation. This is all an environment where, you know, I wouldn't want to just own an index and paint by numbers and buy bonds that issuers thought were attractive to issue. Uh, you've got to be discriminating and discerning here and find the value um, in a largely overvalued, overstretched market. Um, and that's what active managers, you know, sign up to do. And, and we'll take that fertile backdrop of a volatile, uncertain uh, environment, which, you know, hopefully leads to alpha opportunities. 
So now as we record this podcast, the weather in New York City is, well, for lack of a better term, really cold. Uh, Punxsutawney Phil just recently announced six more weeks of winter. But of course, PIMCO's headquarters, Dave, are in Newport Beach. I know you spent a good portion of the earlier part of your career working there. Yes, you're in New York City today. But I have to ask about two urban legends about the West Coast and and what it's like maybe being uh, there full time. Is it true that everyone who lives there has to surf? Uh, as And is it also true that if you're a financial professional in California, you actually have to wake up and work on super early East Coast times in order to, to stay with the markets? Yeah, the, the, those are interesting questions. So, yeah, I spent my first three years in Newport Beach, and then 10 years ago, they moved me to New York when we launched the New York trade floor. I'm originally from the East Coast. Uh, I never had time to surf because I joined there right in the crisis, and I probably would not make a good surfer. Uh, my, my sport is ice hockey. I love that. But I do know a lot of colleagues who have moved out there and took up surfing and are, are quite good at it and quite passionate about it. And then as far as the waking up in the morning, that, that is true. You got to work New York hours out there. And, um, you know, it's funny because when I worked out there, my, my, I have three, three kids. My wife always said, hey, you're a really good father, uh, you know, when we're out here. Because, you know, you, you work, I don't forget when I was working, uh, 4.30 to, to 5 or 5.30. I'd be home every night for dinner, <clears throat> right? My kids were young, then I'd help them with homework. So she was like, you're great. She's like, but you're not a very good husband because you go to bed around 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night and I want to hang out with you. Um, so that's the trade-off we make when you work out there. You basically have to work East coast hours and that has, uh, I guess, family ramifications, but, um, it is what it is. Something for the younger viewers of the podcast to, uh, to think about as they plan their financial career. That is a wrap on this edition of inside ETFs podcast. Thank you, David, for being here to share all of your insights. As a reminder, you can find this episode along with other episodes across all major podcast networks on wealthmanagement.com under the Inside ETFs banner. And of course, the New York Stock Exchange location, home of ETFs.com. I'm Douglas Jonas, head of exchange traded funds at the New York Stock Exchange, the home of ETFs. (laughs) 